Nai Berka Mankalankala, Nai Nari Kamatbi Maricha, Nai Wangadi Mani Budni Gani Yatana, here in Diyatta. Hello, it's uh, Mickey O'Brien here, uh, Ambassador of the Ghana people, and today we're on Ghana country, and I'm known as the Impatient One. So, Nadlu Wangandi Na Mani Na Licha, Mani Na Budni, Barko Piaku, Waramankunti, Gani Yatta. So, we can say hello to you. And we also welcome you to this podcast recorded on Ghana Country. Hello and welcome to the South Australian Museum podcast. Today we're talking with Dr Philip Jones, curator of our current exhibition, Illustrating the Antipodes, George French Angus in Australia, 1844 to 1845. The exhibition is also accompanied by a book of the same name, which is available for purchase through the museum shop. This exhibition is presented in partnership with the National Library of Australia and is supported by the National Collecting Institution's Touring and Outreach Program, an Australian government program aiming to improve access to the national collections for all Australians. Many thanks to the Angus family for their generosity in making works available for research and display. Dr Philip Jones is a senior researcher at the South Australian Museum. He has researched and written about the Australian colonial frontiers since the 1980s when he joined the South Australian Museum as a curator focused on Indigenous Australian material culture. In 2009, Philip undertook a fellowship at the National Library of Australia, where he researched Angus's works. His lifelong passion has culminated in this epic tale of George French Angus's life. Well, my name is uh, Philip Jones, and I've been working at the museum for, well, 40 years, as it happens. And one of the first collections that I became familiar with was the collection of watercolours painted by George French Angus uh, that we'd had in the museum but had rarely been exhibited. We'd had them in the museum since uh, the first decade of the 20th century, acquiring them through the family. And uh, I first began looking at them closely because they provided a window into uh, you could say a world that was, which was the world of, uh, of Aboriginal South Australia at the time of European arrival, uh, or just a few years later. Yeah. Um, yeah, I came to the museum as a volunteer. I started as a volunteer in the early 80s. Uh, previously done a, a law degree and had majored in French history. Uh, but had also studied anthropology. However, it was through my background, I think, um, as a, a child visiting the museum with my shell collection, probably, that uh, had, had made me familiar with the museum and, and seen it as a place where I could uh, come and add to my store of knowledge about the world. So uh, George French um, had grown up in, in this seaside town at Devon and had become a very competent young artist. And he was also a naturalist, an amateur naturalist. He trooped around on the, on the moors of Devon uh, collecting specimens for his little museum and seashells, which became his later passion in, in, um, in, in his uh, adult life. He, he was set upon becoming an artist and a naturalist, even though his father wanted him to join the family uh, banking and merchant business. So it looked as though there would be difficulty in him realising his dream until this South Australian project took, took shape. And he then realised, and his father realised, that he had an asset in his son as an artist because he could send him out to South Australia and George French Angus could, um, could make pictures of the Barossa Valley, um, the settled districts around Adelaide and promote uh, the colony to investors. Uh, George Fife Angus, his father, had considerable investments by then. He effectively bought the Barossa Valley uh, and he had a number of other uh, land holdings. So he had every reason from a personal reason to uh, promote South Australia. And he saw this um, project of his son's 
the idea of producing a book which would be called Illustrating South Australia or South Australia Illustrated uh, would be the ideal um, project. So that's really what brought George French to South Australia uh, at the age of 21 uh, with his sketchbooks and his watercolours and his easel. Um, and he had, an, because of his father's uh, standing, he, his father was able to give him introductions to the governor and to other senior officials here in South Australia. And this is what gave George French his um, flying start. Within, within days, he was having dinner at Government House, and within another couple of weeks, um, George Grey, the governor, had um, arranged for him to accompany expeditions. So the the story of George French Angus arriving in South Australia and, and New Zealand in 1844-45 is really partly the story of um, the colonialist uh, movement across the world by uh, imperial powers so um, George French uh, set off from, from England on one of the South Australia Company ships, the Augustus, in September 1843, and he arrived in Adelaide on the first day of 1844, a hot summer's day. Within hours, he'd met his brother, who was already here in South Australia looking after his father's properties. Within a day or two, he was dining at Government House with Governor George Grey and arranging what would be his program of sketching and painting for the next few months, which would involve participating in, in three expeditions. And the first of these um, began in um, late uh, January and was to Lake Albert into the country of the Naranuri people. A, a short trip, it was only a few days long. The idea was to go down and examine country which the South Australia Company was going to take up as pastoral properties on the shores of Lake Albert. Um, the Naranuri people were not informed about that, but it did happen. George French Angus was able to sketch and to meet uh, and portray um, images of those people along the shore of Lake Albert and their huts and their implements and, and so on. And he was able to do that primarily because he, um, he worked with um, Corporal George Mason, who, who was in, in charge of the only police station in that area uh, at Wellington. And Mason had already begun learning the language and, and working pretty harmoniously with the Naranuri people of the Lower Murray and the Lakes. So this was a um, kind of a beneficial relationship because there had been conflict in, in previous months uh, in, in particular and Mason seemed to have a calming influence on the situation and was able to act as a sort of broker between the two peoples. So Angus benefited from that and in that sense he was often in the right place at the right time. If he'd arrived sooner or later he might have found his task a lot more difficult. But as it was, uh, the way was sort of smoothed for him by Mason, who was able to give him the names of the people that he was representing. And this, this already becomes one of the really interesting characteristics of George French Angus as an artist, as a colonial artist. If you look around the world at this time, you, you did certainly have artists uh, portraying indigenous peoples, but generally as anonymous individuals and not with their names and, and identities. So Mason, already knowing who these people were, was able to unpack that for, for George French. And so we have those records today, and it's even been possible to trace individual family lines back to those individuals uh, for contemporary descendants. 
Um, so that were, that was the first expedition. It was, um, uh, as I say, only only a few days uh, in length. And what generally happened is that Angus then returned to Adelaide. And in Adelaide, he was then able to meet the local Ghana people. Uh, and once again, he benefited from his, um, his introduction to another European, another Englishman, uh, William Cawthorne, who had already got to know Ghana people in Adelaide and, um, and uh, had spent time with them, was learning the language, was, was beginning to exchange information of, of different sorts with, with those people to be invited to ceremony and so on. So Angus was extremely lucky to have that introduction as well in, in Adelaide and to be able to, um, to make portraits of, of Ghana men and women and children. Uh, so that kept him going until the second expedition, which was uh, down the Flurio Peninsula. These were all localities which were hardly known at all to Europeans. There were barely 20 European settlers living on the Flurio Peninsula at that time. So once again, um, the small party on horseback uh, went down from Aldinga, down along the coast. So he, he did a series of sketches and, and watercolours and Governor Gray was just continually impressed by the level of industry that Angus had. As a 21-year-old, he was sort of unstoppable, full of energy and rattling off these watercolours one after another. Not all of them were finished and what he would generally do is that he'd do a sketch very full sketch with a lot of detail in it but he'd, he'd leave a couple of elements free and one of them would generally be uh, the very foreground of the image where he would later put in or sketch in people or animals and the people he, he would often sketch them separately in his sketchbook and then sort of lift those images and put put them into the foreground of his watercolours. And also on the sketch, he, he would pencil in colour notes. One of the striking things about Angus's watercolours is the, the sense that certainly South Australians have that he's captured the colours of the landscape, the vegetation and, and even the skies that we have here in South Australia. And he did that through making these very careful colour notes on the sketches. Often they're very indistinct because he could paint over them, the watercolours, but it was just enough to, to give him, to jog his memory, I guess, when he was back in his studio. So he'd sometimes he would just do a little bit of colouring on the sketch, then come back to Adelaide and finish off the whole sketch. Um, and he had to work at a rate of knots because he had um, obligations to his father to send material back to England as quickly as possible. So he, he, he was working with a degree of rapidity. So he's there in Adelaide during, in between these expeditions and also making trips up to the Barossa where his brother was living. And so he was just constantly on the move. In early April, um, Angus had the opportunity to accompany George Gray and um, essentially an um, exploring and surveying party uh, south of Adelaide along the Coorong and as far south as Mount Gambia. And Mount Gambia had only been known to Europeans at this time through um, through records made from the sea. No European had actually visited it on the ground. So Gray determined on going down there and he invited Angus to accompany, uh, accompany them as the artist and naturalist. So um, Angus set off with the, with the group and they were gone for about six weeks. They managed to, um, to meet with the Naranuri and uh, on, um, around Lake Albert 
and and also on the Coorong. But when they went further south to, say, around Kingston and between Kingston and Mount Gambier, they didn't have any contact, any direct contact with the Aboriginal people. And the reason for that was the mine tank and the Boondick had very good reason for staying clear. They... Um, they didn't know what to expect from the Europeans and probably what they'd heard did not fill them with confidence. So there was actually no direct contact. Um, so uh, what uh, ha- happened is that the expedition just proceeded along. Every now and again they saw fires, they they saw campsites where people had left very hurriedly. Perhaps in a way that was a good thing that there was no direct contact. Um, in the middle of 1844, Angus was feeling that he was nearing the end of his, his work in, in, in Australia. He still had one more expedition to complete with Governor Gray, which would be to Port Lincoln. Um, but in the meantime, he had a letter from his father saying, essentially, your, your time's up, you should come home. Uh, and we have to remember that his father was actually paying his allowance and probably funding the, the whole production of the, the book, as it would, have, would appear. Um, however, George French was only just getting into the swing of it, and he didn't want to go home. Uh, but he didn't know what to do because his father essentially held all the strings. So he managed. He he realised that there was a, an, a South Australia Company ship leaving for New Zealand uh, in um, in August, and he um, he essentially just jumped on that ship and went over to to New Zealand, where he went off the radar for about four months. Uh, his father didn't hear from him, didn't know where he was. In the meantime, um, Governor Gray, who approved of what George French Angus was doing, gave him a letter of introduction or several letters of introduction, uh, one to the governor, Fitzroy, in New Zealand. Uh, and this stood Angus in good stead. He... he um, Landed initially at Port Nicholson, which is now known as Wellington, uh, at the uh, southern coast of the North Island, uh, and spent some time there. And um, he quickly realised that his um, sort of modus operandi would be different from that in South Australia for one key reason, and the key reason was that the English were, the Treaty of Waitangi had occurred just three years earlier and the key rangatira or chiefs, Maori chiefs, um, who had signed that treaty were the power brokers. It was not a question of um, um, sort of uh, following the lead of the English, it was a matter of engaging with the Maori chiefs. So Angus quickly realised that if he could get the Maori chiefs on his side, he could um, he he could more or less choose his subjects for 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 painting. So he immediately um, cottoned on to this, and it was in fact the Maori chiefs who were very enthusiastic about Angus's project because they had the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, they'd expected a lot from it. It had begun to turn a bit sour, and the Maori chiefs wanted something more. They they didn't think they'd got a good deal out of it. And here was this young artist who promised to take their portraits back over the seas to Queen Victoria, which is in fact exactly what he did. Um, although they understood that he would be a sort of diplomat on their behalf or that wasn't necessarily going to be the case but he did make um, very faithful portraits of of the Maori chiefs and their wives and their families and once again Angus was in the right place at the right time 
there had just been the, the Maori Wars, um, the so-called musket wars. So it's a very, it was a very volatile situation. Um, Angus was protected in a way partly because he was working from chief to chief and those chiefs were in favour of what he was doing and they were to, to the degree that they even gave written introductions from one to another, allowing him to travel from, from one uh, by foot, from one... Um, uh, settlement or village to another and he he used the approach of um, he, he, he joined uh, essentially a, um, a missionary uh, tour so uh, a missionary who was also a government official uh, Thomas Forsyth and his little entourage so he went in the North Island from Auckland from uh, from one mission to another by foot across country um, with uh, two Maori guides who, who um, took his um, belongings and carried his, his uh, boxes and he was collecting specimens of natural history at the same time. So one of the characteristics of his, um, his portraiture in, in uh, the Maori villages at this time was the fact that many of the portraits are actually signed by by Maori, who had understood that uh, getting a handle on English was going to assist them enormously in in leveraging some some of the power that they needed to to get out of the situation with um, with um, with the British. And these were canny operators, and uh, you did have the case of uh, villages joining with the British against other villages, and the whole thing became very, very complex. Um, uh, Angus was aware that he was uh, dealing with individuals who could go one way or the other, depending on the circumstances. Um, so there, there's that thread that runs through his um, his images and his 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 journals. He uh, went north to Auckland and spent some time there with a collector scientist friend of his for a few days, and then set off on on this um, sort of epic uh, journey by foot through the North Island, uh, initially from mission to mission. And I attempted to follow this when I went to New Zealand in 2016 for research for this exhibition. Um, I went to the little or fishing village, as it's known today, as of Kavia. And uh, I had uh, set off in a hire car and, uh, in the afternoon and had no idea really how long it would take me to get there. And I arrived... Um, really rather too late it was um, already becoming dark and I had no idea really where the old mission was if it was even in the village or some distance out and I saw some lights on <clears throat> in a house on the edge of the harbour and then realised that maybe it was a club or something so I went down there and knocked on the door and and um, uh, met the, the barman and asked him if he knew anything about this old mission and he said oh you should speak with um, John who, uh, who was sitting down at the one of the tables with his wife and I within a few minutes I realized that I was talking to the great 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 grandson of one of the chiefs that Angus had uh, portrayed in his portraits uh, who knew all about Angus he he, he even had the book um, and he was able to tell me that the mission was just through the wall on, on the right there and I ended up staying the night at his place and he showed me around in the morning to sites that Angus had actually painted 180 years earlier. So it's so an indication of how fresh um, history can be in, in people's minds and memories. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was one of the most remarkable um, aspects of my research into 
Angus's work was realising that this thread has been maintained and, and uh, that these people are very much plugged into their history. So from those um, uh, journeys, uh, I mean, Kavia had been the site of this mission and Forsyth, who, who was the British uh, official and missionary that Angus travelled with, had gone there in order to negotiate with these chiefs because of their misgivings about the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, Angus um, was not part of those negotiations. He was simply there to draw their portraits. They saw him as being part of the same deal, uh, part of this idea that they needed to have their own um, uh, concerns met by the British and that Angus, by making their portraits, could uh, assist in that. So a Angus wrote in his journal that he was absolutely overwhelmed by requests for portraits. Uh, so he, he did as many as he could in a short time, including the portraits of John Carty, who is a paramount chief of that, that region, uh, of the um, Waikato people. So by late uh, October 1844, Angus um, and his two guides had, had arrived at Lake Taupo, in the centre of the North Island and the largest freshwater lake in New Zealand. Very few Europeans had been there uh, up until then, so he was coming into a largely undisturbed uh, cultural landscape of the, the Māori. Uh, and he was carrying with him a letter of introduction which had been written uh, for him by one of the Rangatira chiefs uh, early on in his trip. And it was... Uh, addressed to to Huhu, who was one of the chief, well, he was actually the paramount chief, you might say, of the Lake Taupo district, and it was absolutely critical that Angus get his um, all clear to do the painting that he wanted to do, uh, not only of um, of individuals but of the landscapes, which he was beginning to realise were also imbued with meaning to such a degree that they could be taboo every now and again if, if um, circumstances had lined up in that way. So he needed to get permission and he had this letter uh, to who read it and uh, was happy with its contents. So he, he gave the all clear and Angus was then able to to move around the landscape fairly freely and to make a whole series of pictures of the chiefs, but also of the um, the monuments as as he, as he described them, the the Maori architecture. Um, and uh, he he made some extraordinary pictures, which um, have been used as a reference uh, in subsequent decades by by Maori people um, beginning to revitalise their carving traditions. Lake Taupo had these hot springs. The Maori used uh, for recreation but also for cooking. They would cook uh, potatoes over the hot springs, for example, and, and then go swimming on, on the edge of the lake and, and cool off in the lake after being in the hot springs. So once again, Angus made uh, pictures, watercolours of these activities uh, that are unique. No one else had, had seen them or, or observed them at that time. Uh, and uh, this is something that's still going on today. So these, there's this uh, sense of, of continuity of him coming in at the very beginning of European uh, uh, perceptions or, or realizations of this sort of cultural activity. Uh, he made sketches of the pataka or storehouses uh, that were were in the vicinity, and and some of the workmanship on these was remarkable. Uh, he he found um, a monument to the deceased daughter of one of the rangatira, uh, and. Um, this was carved with uh, by an old Maori man with a single bayonet, uh, and um, 
Angus uh, spent a long time making this picture that's in the exhibition of of this um, uh, essentially monument to the to the deceased daughter of the chief. Uh, and then eventually the artist who was still alive, the craftsman, came forward and saw Angus's picture and described Angus in Maori as a great priest. Uh, that was uh, he, his skill was was being recognised. And once again, the um, the portraits that he was doing of the chiefs were recognised by the chiefs themselves as being an important element in diplomacy with the British because they understood that these would be taken back to um, to Britain, to Queen Victoria, and that they may influence the outcome of the political negotiations that were going on. Angus um, spent about a week in, in this area during October uh, in 1844, and then finally on the 1st of November, he realised that he needed to get back to Auckland in order to, to get a ship to Sydney. And so uh, he set off to, to the north for a couple of hundred kilometres uh, hike through what turned out to be driving rain and forests and rivers. Uh, so little by little he, he, um, he reached uh, familiar country uh, sketching as he went um, and um, uh, finally arriving on the Waipa River um, and um, there meeting Tewero Wero, who, who was another one of these very important um, Maori rangatira. He is uh, at that time just rattling these images off. I, I think he, he, um, he seems to have sped up his production as he went. Uh, but finally arriving at Auckland in, in mid-November uh, and realising that he ha had only a few days left, uh, you can see something similar to what was happening in Adelaide when he was about to leave Adelaide, that he's looking over his portfolio and realising that he's got some gaps in it uh, and how to fill those gaps. Um, I, I, th I think it had become evident to him that he, he needed something with a little more um, joie de vivre, <laughs> some, something a bit social, some, something that would flesh, flesh out his, his work rather than just another portrait and another portrait and a landscape. So it's there that he, he makes, um, in Auckland, he makes these uh, copies of work that had been already published by an, uh, an artist, a European artist who'd been in the area, Joseph Jenner Marat. And there's this extraordinary picture of a uh, what Angus called a Maori native swing, uh, which was a... Um, Basically, the, the the trunk of a tree uh, erected in the in in the ground, and from it, a series of strings or ropes coming down, where people launched themselves into midair and uh, sw swung around in in a spectacular fashion. Angus didn't see this himself. He he's he's getting it from Joseph Jenner Moret's uh, sketch, but. Um, the image that he's made is utterly believable and as as though he was right there at that particular moment and it has been assumed that it was his his original view of that uh, that um, swing but uh, it isn't and it's another example where where Angus was borrowing works from other artists and incorporating them as his own into his own work. Um, there are one or two other examples, such as his study of uh, portraits or portraits of the actual, just the busts and the faces of, of Maori individuals. Um, that is also probably a copy. Uh, but at the same time, he's, uh, he's still making these remarkable images of 
particularly of young uh, Maori men who were beginning to straddle the two cultures. And so he, he made a, an image of Josiah Teua Nui, uh, more or less on the last few days that he was in New Zealand. Young man um, uh, who signed his own portrait, uh, November the 25th, 1844, and he's wearing a, um, a waistcoat and a, and a suit and, and, and a tie. Uh, it turned out that Angus, in um, speaking with Josiah Tanui, uh, had asked him whether he would like to accompany him to England. And Josiah Tanui had already been to England. So you have this... Uh, this sort of colonial milieu that his Angus is, is, is sort of rejoining this this uh, this uh, uh, sort of social situation where a number of the more precocious actors had already been to each other's countries and had travelled around and returned to to New Zealand. Um, so. There's a sort of fluidity about the situation, and even at that stage, it seemed that Angus himself was ready to jump on another ship and go to the Pacific or possibly to India. But he he must have realised that his time really was up, and he needed to get back to England to his father. And so um, he he uh, he waited for a couple of weeks, and finally a ship arrived that could take him back to Sydney. And that's where he, he went from, from there, um, arriving in Sydney uh, later in December and then coming on to Adelaide a few days later where he um, uh, made, uh, rejoined his um, uh, colleague, uh, Governor Gray, uh, and managed to get ready for his final expedition or journey in South Australia, which was to Port Lincoln. And that took place actually in April in 1845. It was just a short trip, but in that trip he, he managed to portray the, uh, the only images that, we, that are on the record of the Bangala and Nau people of Air Peninsula. Uh, he, he made portraits of uh, named men and women in, in that small series um, and uh, also landscapes of Port Lincoln and uh, further west out, out towards um, uh, Coffin Bay where, where he went as well. So really in just a few days, Governor Gray was with him for the first part of that trip and on that They'd, um, they'd initially tried to get down to present-day Robe, but the weather had been against them and they'd been blown further north, and so they pulled into um, Kangaroo Island, where Angus had made one sketch before going on to, to Port Lincoln. And there he, uh, he made these drawings and, and sketches and also spent time with... Um, the missionary there, Clemmer Wilhelm Schuerman, who had by this time uh, got a good handle on the Bangala language in particular, um, and had um, gathered up notes and observations on the various um, uh, social customs. Um, so from there, um, back in Adelaide in, in May, he had just little over six weeks to, to get ready for his first exhibition. And that would be the first uh, solo exhibition for, for any um, artist in Adelaide. So historically quite important. But the exhibition was judged a success. He gathered some more subscribers and then he... Um, set off from Adelaide for what he thought was probably the last time uh, and went over to Sydney via Portland uh, where he, he made further drawings. Um, he had this extraordinary experience in Port Jackson, um, Sydney Harbour, 
working with a senior Aboriginal woman who'd been, who was the widow of Bungaree, who was one of the, the key um, cultural brokers, I guess, between Aboriginal people and the British in, in the first years of um, the, the colony. Um, Queen Gooseberry, as she was known, uh, was an elderly woman, the widow, but she had been shown some of the rock engraving sites around the, the harbour. And she, um, she took uh, uh, Angus and um, uh, another fellow who was an artist in Sydney, uh, George Augustus Miles, and the, the three of them went on a sort of tour of Sydney rock art. And um, Angus and Miles both drew... Uh, images of the rock art. These were the first images that had been drawn uh, sort of scientifically, if you like, of, of, this, of Sydney rock art. And Angus was, in that sense, the first to bring these to the attention of a broader audience because they were published in, in um, not in his large folio volume but in the um, publication of his journals. So armed with all this material, he, he, he really had fleshed out his, his um, volume of work and then he was ready to set off for England. Um, and the extraordinary thing about what he was able to do then at the very last minute was uh, there was a, a young... Um, New Zealand boy, and I say New Zealand because he wasn't actually Maori. He was from he was Moriori, who, which was from the Chatham Islands, and that the Chatham Islands had been uh, settled as New Zealand had been by Polynesian people, uh, and the Maori themselves decided to take over the Chatham Islands just a few years before Angus arrived and there'd been a sort of violent takeover of the Chatham Islands and the Moriori people had come off second best and this boy who was uh, who appeared in Sydney as the son of a Moriori, Moriori woman and in a European man um, had been brought up in a um, English family in Sydney to the age of about 13 and so Angus offered to take him to England to, to be part of the exhibition and to give him tuition in painting uh, and a, perhaps a new start in life because he'd lost both of his parents in the, take, in the Maori takeover of the Chatham Islands. So it's a sort of tale within a tale, but this young man, Hemi Pomari, uh, uh, accompanied Angus to England and appeared with him in his ex major exhibition in the Egyptian Hall that opened in April of 1846. Uh, that was um, very well attended. There were um, there were shows of London every year in the in the summer season, and Angus's show in the Egyptian Hall of Piccadilly, with more than 300 of his watercolours, uh, natural history specimens and artefacts from both New Zealand and, and Australia, uh, was one of the feature events in, in the London calendar for 1846 and uh, was attended by all and sundry, including Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, uh, who who um, endorsed it, and and uh, it had um, once again a cascade of reviews, very good reviews from from all around. Um, by then, the interesting thing was that it had shifted from being South Australia illustrated with New Zealand as a secondary element to being New Zealand as as the the um, the primary. Attractor, and the reason for that was because the the Maori Wars were about to get underway, and there was a lot of attention on um, on New Zealand because of the imminence of of conflict in in New Zealand.
nevertheless, the the Australian material had a had a huge impact. The Maori material was was getting to be well known through other artists anyway, uh, but the result was that Angus had almost equal numbers of subscribers to his South Australian Illustrated and New Zealanders Illustrated books and he'd undertaken to send um, six finished lithographs to every subscriber every two months for both books. Uh, What that meant was that after ten months (coughs) you'd have 60 works for New Zealanders Illustrated and South Australian illustrated and this um this meant that he had the he he had a lot of work to do in a very short time even while the exhibition was on and it seems that this is the reason for there being occasionally two copies of his original watercolors uh, because there's one on the wall he needed another one to work from to make the lithograph so he had this extraordinary ability to rattle off copies of his own work uh, in, in impeccable detail. And this is what he did. So within the next few months, he, he had produced the two major volumes as well as publishing his own journals of his expedition, which was um, published as Savage Life and Scenes in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, un- under that as, as a two-volume uh, set. Um, so within, um, within a year, he'd really acquitted all of his obligations. The exhibition had opened in London. It then travelled to six uh, British cities and each one gathered more subscribers for his volume. Two years later, Angus went off again, this time to South Africa. And he made another expedition and he returned with um, a large number of images. Uh, This time was only able to publish uh, 30 of them rather than 60. (coughs) He was building his reputation and his credentials as a natural history artist were rising to the extent that on his return from South Africa, he was offered the position of a naturalist artist for the uh, expedition which was to look at the, the border between Turkey and Persia. He only lasted a few weeks before he, he um, succumbed to fever and had to go back to, to England and that was effectively the end of his artistic career as a naturalist artist. Um, he recovered He soon after married the sister of his assistant in South Africa Uh, and that was a piece of of detective work that I had to (laughs) undertake because I knew that the assistant had had drowned on the returning voyage to England. He was a cabin boy as well as being Angus's assistant and he'd fallen off the mast, which happened quite often to cabin boys who were the first to be sent aloft in a gale. Uh, And so I knew that his name was Stephen Moran and that Angus had named a butterfly after him, which he'd found in South Africa. And then I'd known that he had married an Alicia Moran. And so I just thought I should investigate whether there was any potential connection between these two Um, and it turns out they were brother and sister. So the possibility is that Angus had actually gone back to, had taken Stephen Moran's uh, sea chest, you might say, uh, back to to Dublin where he was from and that's where he met Alicia, married and his life changed again. He, he, uh, he spent a bit more time in England and then returned to Australia in 1850, uh, this time aged 28. And uh, he um, spent a, bit, a little bit of time in the Barossa Valley with his family and then went to the goldfields um, at um, uh, Ballarat and made the first uh, published pictures of the goldfields, which uh, helped to make him a little more 
financially viable, I think. But soon after that, he realised that a career as an artist wasn't really feasible. And uh, he, he became the, the chair or, or the um, secretary, rather, of the Australian Museum in Sydney for seven years. And that's when he returned to his first love, which was shell collecting. And he became, from that point on, uh, more and more respected as a conchologist or a specialist in shells and became known as the father of Australian conchology for the number of shells that Australian shells that he collected and named or had named for him. And that was really the... Uh, the way that he, he spent his last uh, 20 years from, from uh, well, 25 years from 1863 until his death in 1886, uh, only aged 64. He poured so much of his skill and expertise into these finely delineated drawings and, and watercolours um, something between three and four hundred uh, watercolours made within the space of four years. In Angus's case we've got something like 700 sketches um, fitting into or next to or alongside his watercolours. The fact that we've been able to find the sketches for the watercolours and that way uh, create a sort of sequence of activity through, throughout his uh, expeditions, connecting the dots and, and working out which sketch related to which watercolour. Um, that, uh, that's been a very rewarding process. Angus, he seemed to have the gift of putting people at their ease when he painted them. When you look at those portraits, you don't see people looking uh, panicked or uneasy. They seem to be at their ease. Um, Angus had something of a gift, I think, for putting people at their ease. So I think that that's um, something that we can contrast with a lot of other colonial artists where you see anonymous-looking individuals who are reduced to being a sort of type rather than um, seeing their humanity or their personality. I hope that um, this um, skim across the surface of Angus's life and career has been interesting. Thank you for listening to the South Australian Museum podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Meg Lloyd, audio production was by Jake Holmes, theme song by Peter Saunders, and Garner Welcome by Uncle Michael O'Brien. You can also go back and listen to our previous episode, Ghana Still Here, about the exhibition partially inspired by George French Angus. Get in touch on social media or by emailing programs at samuseum.sa.gov.au. Natalia, nakata. Thank you and see you later. <laughs>